0: Section 42 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 20, Part 2. To Breeze to Turan. in the morning i discover that my Mussulman hat-band has mysteriously disappeared and when preparing to depart a miscellaneous collection of females gather about me seize the bicycle and with much boisterous hilarity refuse to let me depart until i have given each one of them some money their behavior is on the whole so outrageous that i appeal to my patient of yesterday evening in whose bosom i fancy i may perchance have kindled a spark of gratitude but the old reprobate no longer has the stomach-ache and he regards my unavailing efforts to break away from my hoydenesh tormentors, with supreme indifference, as though there were nothing extraordinary in their conduct. The demeanor of these wild-eyed, cordish females on this occasion fully convinces me that the stories concerning their barbarous conduct towards travelers captured on the road is not an exaggeration, for while preventing my departure they seem to take a rude, boisterous delight in worrying me on all sides, like a gang of puppies barking and harassing anything they fancy powerless to do them harm after i have finally bribed my freedom from the woman the men seize me and attempt to further detain me until they can send for their sheik to come from another camp miles away to see me ride after waiting a reasonable time out of respect for their having accommodated me with quarters for the night and no signs of the sheik appearing i determined to submit to their impudence no longer they gather about me as before but presenting my revolver and assuming an angry expression i threaten instant destruction to the next one laying hands on either myself or the bicycle They then give way with lowering brows and sullen growls of displeasure. My rough treatment on this occasion, compared with my former visit to a Cordage camp, proves that there is as much difference between the several tribes of nomad cords as between their sedentary relatives of Baba and Malusuman, respectively. For their general reputation, it were better that I had spent the night in searching. A few miles from the camp, I am overtaken by four horsemen, followed by several dogs and a pig, It proves to be the tardy sheik and his retainers, who have galloped several miles to catch me up. The sheik is a pleasant, intelligent fellow of thirty or thereabouts, and astonishes me by addressing me as monsieur. They canter along for a mile or so, highly delighted, when the sheik cheerily sings out, Adieu, monsieur, and they wheel about in return. Had their sheik been in the camp I stayed at, my treatment would undoubtedly have been different. I am at the time rather puzzled to account for so strange a sight as a pig galloping briskly behind the horses, Taking no notice of the dogs which continually gamble about him, but I afterwards discovered that a pet pig trained to follow horses is not an unusual thing among the Persians and Persian cords. They are thin, wiry animals of a sandy color and quite capable of following a horse for hours. They live in the stable with their equine companions, finding congenial occupation in rooting around for stray grains of barley. The horses and pig are said to become very much attached to each other when on the road. the pig is wont to signify its disapproval of a too rapid pace by appealing squeaks and grunts whereupon the horse responsibly slacks its speed to a more accommodating speed for its porcine companion the road now winds tortuously along the base of some low gravel hills and the wheeling perceptibly improves beyond the nickbe it strikes across the hilly country and more trundling becomes necessary at nickbe i manage to leave the inhabitants in a profound puzzle by replying that i am not a ferengi but an englishman this seems to mystify them not a little and they commence inquiring among themselves for an explanation of the difference they are probably inquiring yet fifty-eight miles are covered from the cordish camp and at three o'clock the blue-tiled domes of the senjan mosques appear in sight these blue-tiled domes are more characteristic of persian mosques which are usually built of bricks and have no lofty tapering minarets as in turkey the summons to prayer is called from the top of a wall or a roof when approaching the city gate a half-crazy man becomes wildly excited at the spectacle of a man on a wheel and rushing up seizes hold of the handle as i spring from the saddle he rapidly takes to his heels finding that i am not pursuing him he plucks up courage and timidly approaching begs me to let him see me ride again st is celebrated for the manufacture of copper vessels and the rat-a-tat-tat of the workmen beating them out in the coppersmith's quarters is heard fully a mile outside the gate the hammering is sometimes deafening while trundling through these quarters and my progress through it is indicated by what might perhaps be termed a sympathetic wave of silence following me along the din ceasing at my approach and commencing again through renewed vigour after i have passed monsieur f a levantine gentleman in charge of the station here fairly outdoes himself in the practical interpretation of genuine old-fashioned hospitality which brooks no sort of interference with the comfort of his guest understanding the perpetual worry a person travelling in so extraordinary a manner must be subject to among an excessively inquisitive people like the persians he kindly takes upon himself the duty of protecting me for anything of the kind during the day i remain over as his guest and so manages to secure me much appreciated rest and quiet the governor of the city sends an officer around saying that himself and several prominent dignitaries would very much like to see the bicycle very good replies mr f the bicycle is here and mr stevens will doubtless be pleased to receive his excellency and the leading officials of Zenjin any time it suits their convenience to call and will probably have no objection to showing them the bicycle it is perhaps latest to explain that the governor doesn't show up i however have an interesting visitor in the person of the Sheik ul islam head of religious affairs in zinjen a venerable-looking old party in flowing gown and monster turban, whose hands and flowing beard are dyed to a ruddy yellow with henna. The al islam is considered the holiest personage in Zinzidjum, and his appearance and demeanor does not in the least belie his reputation. Whatever may be his private opinion of himself, he makes far less display of sanctimoniousness than many of the common sayards, who usually gather their garments about them whenever they pass a Ferengi in the bazaar, for fear their clothing should become defiled by brushing against him. The Shigil Islam fulfills one's idea of a gentle-bred, worthy-minded old patriarch. He examines the bicycle, and listens to the account of my journey with much curiosity and interest, and bestows a flattering meed of praise on the wonderful ingenuity of the Ferengis, as exemplified in my wheel. From Zidjun eastward, the road gradually improves, and after a dozen miles develops into the finest wheeling yet encountered in Asia. The country is a gravelly plain between a mountain chain on the left, and a range of lesser hills to the right near noon i passed through Sultane, formerly a favorite country resort of the persian monarchs on the broad grassy plain during an autumn the shah was wont to find amusement in maneuvering his cavalry regiments and for several months an encampment near sultana became the headquarters of that arm of the service the shah's palace and the blue dome of a large mosque now rapidly crumbling to decay are visible many miles before reaching the village the presence of the shah and his court doesn't seem to have exerted much of a refining or civilizing influence on the common villagers Otherwise they have retrograded sadly towards barbarism ever since Sultana has ceased to be a favorite resort. They appear to regard the spectacle of a lone Ferengi meandering through their wretched village on a wheel as an opportunity for doing something aggressive for the cause of Islam not to be overlooked. I am followed by a hooting mob of bare-legged wretches, who forthwith proceed to make things lively and interesting by pelting me with stones and clods of dirt. One of these wantonly aimed missiles catches me square between the shoulders, with a force that, had it struck me fairly on the back of the neck, would in all probability have knocked me clean out of the saddle unfortunately several irrigating ditches crossing the road immediately ahead prevents escape by a spurt and nothing remains but to dismount and proceed to make the best of it there are only about fifty of them actively interested and part of these being mere boys they are anything but a formidable crowd of belligerents if one could only get in among them with a stuffed club they seem but little more than human vermin in their rags and nakedness and like vermin the greatest difficulty is to get hold of them seeing me dismount they immediately take to their heels only to turn and commence throwing stones again at finding themselves unpursued. While I am retreating and actively dodging the shower of missiles, they gradually venture closer and closer until things become too warm and dangerous. I drop the bicycle and make a feint towards them. They then take to their heels to return to the attack again as before, when I again commence retreating. Finally I try the experiment of a shot in the air, by way of notifying them of my ability to do them serious injury. This has the effect of keeping them at a more respectful distance, but they seem to understand that i am not intending serious shooting and the more expert throwers manage to annoy me considerably until ridable ground is reached seeing me mount they all come racing pell-mell after me hurling stones and howling insulting epithets after me as a Ferenghi. but with smooth road ahead i am of course quickly beyond their reach the villages east of sultana are observed to be almost without exception surrounded by a high mud wall a characteristic giving them the appearance of fortifications rather than mere agricultural villages The original object of this was, doubtless, to secure themselves against surprises from wandering tribes, and as the Persians seldom think of changing anything, the custom is still maintained. Bushes are now occasionally observed near the roadside, from every twig of which a strip of rag is fluttering in the breeze. It is an ancient custom still kept up among the Persian peasantry when approaching any place they regard with reverence, as the ruined mosque and imperial palace of Sultana, to tear a strip of rag from their clothing and fasten it to some roadside bush. This is supposed to bring them good luck in their undertakings and the bushes are literally covered with the variegated offerings of the superstitious riots. Where no bushes are handy, heaps of small stones are indicative of the same belief. Every time he approaches the well-known heap, the peasant picks up a pebble and adds it to the pile. Owing to a late start and a prevailing headwind, but forty-six miles are covered today, when about sundown I seek the accommodation of the Chepawakana at Hia. But, providing the road continues good, I promise myself to polish off the sixty miles between here and Kasveen tomorrow the Karpakana sleeping apartments at hia contain whitewashed walls and reed matting and presents an appearance of neatness and cleanliness altogether foreign to these institutions previously patronized here also first occurs the innovation from hasheri to sahib when addressing me in a respectful manner it will be sahib from this point clear to through and beyond india my various titles through the different countries thus far traversed have been monsieur herr effendi Hamsheri, and now Sahib one naturally wonders what new surprises are in store ahead. A bountiful supper of scrambled eggs, tokimi morage, is obtained here, and the customary shakedown on the floor. After getting rid of the crowd, I seek my rude couch, and am soon in the land of unconsciousness. An hour afterwards I am wakened by the busy hum of conversation, and behold, in the dim light of a primitive lamp, I become conscious of several pairs of eyes immediately above me, peering with scrutinizing inquisitiveness into my face, others are examining the bicycle standing against the wall of my head rising up i found the chaparquahana crowded with caravan teamsters who going past with a large camel caravan from the caspian seaport of esch have heard of the bicycle and come flocking to my room i can hear the unmelodious clanging of the big sheet iron bells as their long string of camels file slowly past the building daylight finds me again on the road determined to make the best of early morning ere the stiff easterly wind which seems inclined to prevail of late commences blowing great guns against me. A short distance out, I meet a string of some three hundred laden camels that have not yet halted after the night's march. Scores of large camel caravans have been encountered since leaving rome but they have invariably been halting for the day. These camels regard the bicycle with a timid reserve, merely swerving a step or two off their course as I wheel past. They all seem about equally startled, so that my progress down the ranks simply causes a sort of gentle ripple along the line as though each successive camel were playing a game of follow my leader the road this morning is nearly perfect for wheeling consisting of well-trodden camel paths over a hard graveled surface that of itself naturally makes excellent surface for cycling there is no wind and twenty-five miles are duly registered by the cyclometer when i halt to eat the breakfast of bread and a portion of yesterday evening's scrambled eggs which i have brought along on passe and approaching casvin the plain widens to a considerable extent and becomes perfectly level Apparent distances become deceptive, and objects at a distance assume weird, fantastic shapes. Beautiful mirages hold out their allurements from all directions. The somber walls of villages present the appearance of battlemented fortresses rising up from the mirror-like surface of silvery lakes, and orchards and groves seem shadowy, indefinable objects floating motionless above the earth. The telegraph poles traversing the plain in a long straight line until lost to view in the hazy distance appear to be suspended in mid-air camels horses and all moving objects more than a mile away present the strange optical illusion of animals walking through the air many feet above the surface of the earth long lines of kanaat mounds traverse the plain in every direction leading from the numerous villages to distant mountain chains descending one of the sloping cavernous entrances before mentioned for a drink i am rather surprised at observing numerous fishes disporting themselves in the water which on the comparatively level plain flows but slowly perhaps they are an eyeless variety similar to those found in the mammoth cave of kentucky still they get a glimmering light from the numerous perpendicular shafts flocks of wild pigeons also frequent these underground watercourses and the peasantry sometimes capture them by the hundreds with nets placed over the shafts the canats are not bricked archways but merely tunnels burrowed through the ground three miles of loose sand and stones have to be trundled through before reaching casveen nevertheless my promised sixty miles are overcome and i enter the city gate at two p m a trundle through several narrow crooked streets brings me to an inner gateway emerging upon a broad, smooth avenue. A short ride down this brings me to a large enclosure containing the customs-house offices and a fine brick caravansary. Yet another prince appears here in the person of a customs-house official. I readily grant the requested privilege of seeing me ride, but the title of a Persian prince is no longer associated in my mind with greatness and importance. Princes in Persia are as plentiful as counts in Italy or barons in Germany, yet it rather shocks one's dreams of the splendor of oriental royalty to find princes manipulating the keys of a one-wire telegraph control station at a salary of about forty dollars a month twenty-five tomans, or attending to the prosy duties of a small customs-house casphine is important as being the half-way station between Turan and the Caspian port of esht and on the highway of travel and commerce between northern persia and europe added importance is likewise derived from it being the terminus of a broad level road from the capital and where travelers and the mail from Tehran have to be transferred from wheeled vehicles to the backs of horses for the passage over the rugged passage of the Elberge Mountains, leading to the Caspian Slope, or vice versa when going the other way. locking the bicycle up in a room of the caravansary, I take a strolling peep at the nearest street. A couple of the looties, or professional buffoons, seeing me strolling leisurely about, come hurrying up. One is leading a baboon by a string around the neck, and the other is carrying a gourd drum, reaching me, the man with the baboon commences making the most ludicrous grimaces and causes the baboon to caper wildly about by jerking the string while the drummer proceeds to belabor the head of his drum apparently with a single object of extracting as much noise from it as possible putting my fingers to my ears i turn away ten minutes afterwards i observe another similar combination making a bee-line for my person waving them off i continue on down the street soon afterwards yet a third party attempts to secure me for an audience it is the custom for these strolling buffoons to thus present themselves before persons on the street, and to visit houses wherever there is occasion for rejoicing, as at a wedding, or the birth of a son. The lutes are to Persians what Italian organ-grinders are among ourselves. I fancy people give them money chiefly to get rid of their noise and annoyance, as we do to save ourselves from the soul-harrowing tones of a wheezy crank-organ beneath the windows. Among the novel conveyances observed in the courtyard of the caravansary is the Taktroen, a large sedan-chair provided with shafts at either end and carried between two mules or horses another is the before-mentioned kajabev an arrangement not unlike a pair of canvas-covered dog kennels strapped across the back of an animal these latter contrivances are chiefly used for carrying women and children after riding around the courtyard several different times for crowds continually coming i finally conclude that there must be a limit to this sort of a thing anyhow and refuse to ride again the newcomers linger around however until evening in the hopes that an opportunity of seeing me ride may present itself a number of them then contribute a handful of coppers, which they give to the proprietor of a tributary touchkan to offer me as an inducement to ride again. The wily Persians know full well that Wild Ferengi would scorn to accept their handful of coppers. He would probably be sufficiently amused at the circumstances to reward their persistence by riding for nothing. Telling the grinning kaji to pocket the coppers, I favor them with positively the last entertainment this evening. An hour later, the kaji meets me going towards the bazaar in search of something for supper. Inquiring the object of my search, he takes me back to his touchkan points significantly to an iron kettle simmering on a small charcoal fire and bids me to be seated after waiting on a customer or two and supplying me with tea he quietly beckons me to the fire removes the cover and reveals a savoury dish of stewed chicken and onions this he generously shares with me a few minutes later refusing to accept any payment as there are exceptions to every rule so it appears there are individuals even among the persian commercial classes capable of generous and worthy impulses true the khaji obtained more than the value of the supper in a handful of coppers but gratitude is generally understood to be an unknown commodity among the subjects of the shah. Soon the obstreperous cries of al-Akbar, Allah, Allah ila Allah, from the throats of numbers of the faithful perched among the caravanserai steps, stable-roof, and other conspicuous soul-inspiring places announces the approach of bedtime. My room is actually found to contain a towel and an old toothbrush. The towel has evidently not been laundered for some time, and a public toothbrush is hardly a joy-inspiring object to contemplate. Nevertheless, there are evidences that the proprietor of a caravanserai is possessed of vague, shadowy ideas of a Ferengi's requirements. After a person has dried his face with the slanting sunbeams of early morning, or with his pocket-handkerchief for weeks, the bare possibility of soap, towels, etc., awakens agreeable reflections of coming comforts. At seven o'clock on the following morning, I pull out towards Turan, now but six Chabar stations distant. Running parallel with the road is the Elbert Range of Mountains, a lofty chain separating the elevated plateau of central Persia from the moist and wooded slopes of the Caspian Sea. South of this great dividing ridge the country is an arid and barren waste, a desert in fact, save where irrigation redeems here and there a circumscribed area, and the mountain slopes are grey and rocky. Crossing over to the northern side of the divide, one immediately finds himself in a moist climate, and a country green almost as the British Isles, with dense boxwood forests covering the slopes of the mountains and hiding the foothills beneath an impenetrable mantle of green. The Ellsberg Mountains are a portion of a great watershed of Central Asia, extending from the Himalayas up through Afghanistan and Persia into the Caucasus, and they perform very much the same office for the Caspian slope of Persia as the Sierra Nevadas do for the Pacific slope of California, insomuch as they cause the moisture-laden clouds rolling in from the sea to empty their burdens on the seaward slopes instead of penetrating further into the interior. The road continues fair-wheeling, but nothing compared with the road between Zijin and Kasvian it is more of an artificial highway the persian government has been tinkering with it improving it considerably in some respects but leaving it somewhat lumpy and unfinished generally and in places it is unrideable from sand and loose material on the surface it has the appreciable merit of levelness however and for persia it is a very creditable highway indeed at four fasukhs from kazvin i reach the chapar kahana of kawanda where breakfast is obtained of eggs and tea these two things are among the most readily obtained refreshments in persia the country this morning is monotonous and uninteresting, being for the most part a stony level plain, sparsely covered with gray camelthorn shrubs. Occasionally one sees in the distance a camp of Iliants, one of the wandering tribes of Persia. Their tents are smaller and of an entirely different shape from the Kurdish tents, partaking more of the nature of square-built movable huts than tents. These camps are too far off my road to justify paying them a visit, especially as I shall probably have abundant opportunities before leaving the Shah's dominions. But I intercept a straggling party of them crossing the road. They have a more docile look about them than the Kurds, have more the general appearance of gypsies, and they dress but little different from the riots of surrounding villages. At Kishloch, where I obtain a dinner of bread and grapes, I find the cyclometer has registered a gain of 32 miles from Kasvien. It has scarcely been an easy 32 miles, for I am again confronted by a discouraging head breeze. Reaching the Shah Abbas caravanasserie of Yang Iman, all first-class caravansaries are called Shah Abbas Kavada in deference to so many having been built throughout Persia by that monarch. About five o'clock. I conclude to remain here overnight, having wheeled fifty-three miles. Yang Iman is a splendid large brick saray, the finest I have seen yet in Persia. Many travelers are putting up here, and the place presents quite a lively appearance. In the center of the courtyard is a large covered spring. Around this is a garden of rose bushes, pomegranate trees, and flowers. Surrounding the garden is a brick wall, and forming yet a larger square is a caravanserai building itself, consisting of a one-storied brick edifice partitioned off into small rooms. The building is only one room deep, and each room opens upon a sort of covered porch containing a fireplace, where a fire can be made and provisions cooked. Attached to the caravanessary, usually beneath the massive and roomy arched gateway, is a touch con and a small store where bread, eggs, butter, fruit, charcoal, etc. are to be obtained. The traveler hires a room which is destitute of all furniture, provides his own bedding and cooking utensils, purchases provisions and a sufficiency of charcoal, and proceeds to make himself comfortable. In a pinch, one can usually borrow a frying pan or kettle of some kind, and in such first-class caravansaries as Yang Yemen, there is sometimes one furnished room carpeted and provided with bedding reserved for the accommodation of travelers of importance. After the customary programme of riding to allay the curiosity and excitement of the people, I obtain bread, fruit, eggs, butter to cook them in, and charcoal for a fire. The elements of a very good supper for a hungry traveller borrowing a handless frying-pan i am setting about preparing my own supper when a respectable-looking persian steps out from the crowd of curious onlookers and voluntarily takes this rather onerous duty out of my hands readily obtaining my consent he quickly kindles a fire and scrambles and fries the eggs while my volunteer cook is thus busily engaged a company of distinguished travellers passing along the road haul to the tachkhan to smoke a kalyan and drink tea the caravanessary proprietor approaches me and winking mysteriously intimates that by going outside and riding for the edification of the new arrivals i will be pretty certain to get a present of a careen about twenty cents as he appears anxious to have me accommodate them i accordingly go out and favor them with a few turns on a level place of ground outside after they have departed the proprietor covertly offers me a half careen piece in a manner so that everybody can observe him attempting to give me something without seeing the amount the wily persian had doubtless solicited a present from the travellers for me obtained perhaps a couple of kareens and watching a favorable opportunity offers me the half-korean peace. The wily ways of these people are several degrees more ingenious even than the dark ways and vain tricks of Bret Hart's heathen Chinese. Occupying wonderful rooms are two young noblemen traveling with their mother to visit the governor of Zenja. After I have eaten my supper, they invite me to their apartments for the evening. Their mother has a samovar under full headway and a number of hard-boiled eggs. Her two hopeful sons are engaged in a drinking bout of arak. They are already wildly hilarious and indulging in brotherly embraces and doubtful love songs. Their fond mother regards them with approving smiles as they swallow glass after glass of the raw, fiery spirit, and become gradually more intoxicated and hilarious. Instead of checking their tippling, as a fond and prudent Ferengi mother would have done, this indulgent parent encourages them, rather than otherwise, and the more deeply intoxicated and hilariously happy the sons become, the happier seems the mother. About nine o'clock they fall to weeping tears of affection for each other and for myself, and degenerate into such modern sentimentality generally that I naturally become disgusted, except a parting glass of tea, and bid them good evening. The caravan-assery, G., assigns me the furnished chamber above referred to. The room is found to be well-carpeted, contains a mattress and an abundance of flaming red quilt, and on a small table reposes a well-thumbed copy of the Koran with gilt lettering and illuminated pages. For these really comfortable quarters I am charged the trifling sum of one Koran. I am now within fifty miles of Tehran, my destination until springtime comes around again and enables me to continue on eastward towards the Pacific. The wheeling continues fair, and in the cool of early morning a good headway is made for several miles. As the sun peeps over a summit of a mountain spur jutting southward a short distance from the main Elsberg range, a wall of air comes rushing from the east as though the sun were making strenuous exertions to usher in the commencement of another day with a triumphant toot. Multitudes of donkeys are encountered on the road. The omnipresent carriers of the Persian peasantry taking produce to the Tehran market. The only wheeled vehicle encountered between Kasvin and Tehran is a heavily wheeled cumbersome mail wagon rattling briskly along behind four galloping horses driven abreast and a newly imported carriage for some notable of the capital being dragged by hand a distance of two hundred miles from resht by a company of soldiers. Pedaling laboriously against a stiff breeze, I round the jutting mountain spur about eleven o'clock and the conical snow-crowned peak of Mount Demavend looms up like a beacon light from among the lesser heights of the Eberg Range about seventy-five miles ahead. Demavend is a perfect cone, some twenty thousand feet in height, and is reputed to be the highest point of land north of the Himalayas. From the projecting mountain spur, the road makes a beeline across the intervening plain to the capital. A large willow-fringed irrigating ditch now traverses the stony plain for some distance parallel with the road, supplying the caravanserai of Shahabad and several adjacent villages with water. Turan itself, being situated on the level plain, and without the tall minarets that render Turkish cities conspicuous from a distance, leaves one undecided as to its precise location until within a few miles of the gate. It occupies a position a dozen or more miles south of the base of the Elsberg Mountains, and is flanked on the east by another jutting spur. To the southward is an extensive plain sparsely dotted with villages, and the walled gardens of the wealthy Turanis. At one o'clock on the afternoon of September 30th, the sentinels of the Casvin gate of the shah's capital gaze with unutterable astonishment at the strange spectacle of a lone ferengi riding towards them astride an airy wheel that glints and glitters in the bright persian sunbeams they look still more wonder-stricken and half inclined to think me some supernatural being as without dismounting i ride beneath the gaudily covered archway and down the suburban streets a ride of a mile between dead mud walls and along an open business street and i find myself surrounded by wondering soldiers and citizens in the great central Hayden, or artillery square, and shortly afterwards in endeavouring to eradicate some of the dust and soil of travel in a room of a wretched apology for a hotel kept by a Frenchman, formerly a pastry cook to the Shah. My cyclometer has registered 1,576 miles from Isthmut, from Liverpool to Constantinople, where I had no cyclometer, may be roughly estimated at 2,500, making a total from Liverpool to Tehran of 4,076 miles. In the evening, several young Englishmen belonging to the staff of the Indo-European telegraph company come round, and re-echoing my own above-mentioned sentiments concerning the hotel, generously invite me to become a member of their comfortable bachelor establishment during my stay in Tehran. How far do you reckon it from London to Tehran by your telegraph line? I inquire of them during our after-supper conversation. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 miles is the reply. What does your cyclometer say? End of section 42. Recording by Todd